Hello, and welcome back to the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Thorne. While winter is still in full swing for most of us, longer days and warmer temperatures are right around the corner. And that means green grass, baby lambs, and, well, parasites. Parasites are quite damaging to sheep across the world, and quite a bit of research, extension education, and industry work is dedicated to battling these formidable foes. Even on this podcast, we've had multiple episodes covering how to keep sheep healthy and to avoid the worst of production losses in the face of a parasite challenge. With that said, the label parasite is really quite all-encompassing, and while considerable attention is placed on those that harm the sheep from inside the GI tract, just as importantly, many parasites create havoc for livestock from the outside and can be just as detrimental. External parasitism in itself is diverse, encompassing various creatures that fly, bite, sting, suck blood, and are all-around nuisances for sheep and shepherd alike. But if ignored, Nuisance can turn into full-scale flock health crisis, if we are not careful. Staying up to date on the latest recommendations and best management practices for controlling external parasites is a must for sheep producers across the U.S. Many flocks do have protocols in place, but too often the why and how to best treat animals is maybe not fully understood. Joining me today is Dr. Cassandra Olds, an assistant professor in the Department of Entomology at Kansas State University, to talk about the latest information and need-to-know methods for handling external parasitism in our sheep flocks. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Olds. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Great. Now, modern technology is a great thing. You're actually joining me from South Africa. Uh, so this is really cool that we're able to do this. I'm here in Texas. Uh, you're there in South Africa, and, and we're still able to have a conversation and actually visit face-to-face. -face. I think that's really neat. It's really neat. And I tell you, um, I'm visiting my parents, and they live in a rural area. And just, you know, a mile or so down the road, there's a little flock of sheep. And and I've, I've always loved them, but today I was, we drove past and I thought, you know what, guys, I'm going to talk about you guys later today. Perfect. Yes. Well, you know, before we get into some of these questions, uh, Dr. Olds, I would love to hear a, a little bit about, you know, what led you to the field of entomology and, and what you brought you to the U.S. And, and Kansas State University. Yeah, I, I entered entomology in a roundabout fashion. I wasn't one of these kids who grew up loving bugs, quite the opposite, um, but I was always very interested in animal health and animal well-being. So after my undergraduate degree, I got um, offered out of the sort of blue, I didn't look for it, but I got offered a position to work on cattle pests, uh, the, the pathogen that is transmitted by ticks. And I'd always loved cattle. And I just thought, yeah, this is what I've got to do. And I had my supervisor at the time said, well, you can't, you can't, study tick-borne diseases and know nothing about the ticks. So I'm going to send you out into the field and you're going to go collect some ticks. And I thought, oh, goodness, I can't think of anything worse. <laughs> but yeah. the bug bit, as they say, because, yeah. I, you know, the more, I, the more research I did, the more I, I really, as I got to know these insects and, and just realized how amazing they are and how well adapted to their life they are, a, a real fascination for them and just an appreciation for how complex they are. And so one thing led to another, and I, um, again, I was just very fortuitous. I got offered a postdoc in the States, and I said yes, and uh, that took me over to the States. And I uh, visited Kansas State for something else, and I just fell in love with Kansas State University. And I, 
I just decided that's where I needed to be. So veterinary entomology, it's a small field. There's not too many of us. And I just, I knew this is where I wanted to be. And when the position became open, I tried my hardest and I got the job and happily ever after, as they say. Well, that's great. Yeah, we're, we're really happy to, to have you here and to, and to have you on the podcast as well. I'm looking forward today. Uh, so, you know, just broadly speaking, what are the, the major ways that external parasites negatively affect sheep? Yeah, this is, this is a hard one to quantify because we know obviously that they do, but how do you put that into numbers? And it's, it's, the sheep industry is even, I would say, at, at a slight disadvantage. We, we have some sort of numbers for the cattle industry, but for sheep industry, it's even harder to get numbers into, okay, if I have this many pests, it's causing this much damage. And part of the reason for that is it's so variable. If you just look at some of the, th the factors that can influence it, production size, you know, a large producer can absorb costs of um, parasitism better than a, a small producer can. Your production type, are you a meat producer, are you a milk producer, are you producing for fibers? That'll impact how, what your, your cost of parasitism is. The animal itself, how old is it? what breed it is, what other social pressures, are they well-nourished, are they not well-nourished? And then to add to all this complexity, we have to remember that external parasites don't occur in isolation. You don't just have a kid infestation. You have kids with lice, with flies. And so all of these add up to be very complex. So, you know, people want a number, but I, I honestly can't give a number because it's so complex. In cropping agriculture, you can very easily say, okay, with this variety of crop, with this insect pressure, this is how much it's going to cost to control it, and this is what my increased gains are going to be. And so you can very easily say, okay, it costs this much to control, it's costing this much in damage, at what point should I intervene? Whereas in livestock, it's so much harder to predict when is my intervention point and so it really is variable between what your output is and also what you feel comfortable with. No matter what your organism is, it's going to be causing damage. But it's also unrealistic to expect that we can eliminate all these parasites all the time. So it's a matter of, for each producer, getting a feel for, okay, what, what do I have? What is the number? Am I seeing decrease in production? Are my lambs smaller? Are they not gaining weight as much as possible? How much wool do I normally get? And so correlating that with how many parasites you have and starting to get a feel with, okay, I've got this breed. It tends to behave this way. When we have a wetter year, this is how many insects I see. Maybe I should be a little bit more proactive with my insect control. So I wish there was a number, but there really isn't. Um, and even, you know, Neighbors can have different insect pressures. So it really comes down to um, what your unique situation is. And the best thing you can do is get familiar with these insects and their biology because then you can start making educated decisions on, okay, where is this insect breeding? What is it doing? And how can I get rid of it to, uh, to the best of my abilities? Well, that's what we're going to cover in the next 30 minutes, right? Yeah, we're going to try. <laughs> Jam it all in there. <laughs> okay. Excellent. So, you know, really external parasites, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is a pretty broad category of, of several species. So what are some of the major categories or classes of, of external parasites that sheep producers should be concerned? Yeah. And so um, basically, when we're looking at sheep specifically, 
there's a number of them, but our biggest concern is going to be the sheep kids. Um, then we've got the lice, we've got mites, uh, we've got mosquitoes and midges. Um, those are, are a lot of what we, we generally worry about. The main thing being our, um, our sheep kids. They really are our biggest economic impactors. Um, but, you know, that's, and, and they're found throughout the States. All the organisms that we're going to talk about are found throughout the states, but not all states have high levels. So, for example, um, lice, we, uh, we tend to get fewer lice in Wyoming because it's drier. So even though you have lice, it's not as much of a problem as in your southern states where it's a lot more humid. So we have everything everywhere, but not everybody's going to have it to the same level of, 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 of problem. Um, so, so, yeah, we, we, we'll talk about those ones Um but primarily our, our kids are ones that we, we worry about. Okay. And, and just a few minutes here, I, I want to ask you maybe some more specifics on, on some of these different species. But uh, just in general, you know, our external parasites, are, are they often shared amongst our, our live different uh, livestock species? Uh, or is that dependent on whatever pests that we're talking about? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, a lot of them are shared between species. So for example, a stable fly, it's a little blood feeding fly. And that little bugger, it will go for a horse, it'll go for a cow, it'll go for a sheep, it'll go for a dog. If you're standing nearby, you'll get zapped too. So something like that is not yeah. host specific at all. Um, but then then you start to get into the, the intricacies of it. So for example, cattle get lice, Sheep get lice. However, the lice on cattle, completely different species to the lice that you get on sheep. So they both get lice, but different species. And so if you put a, a cow lice on a sheep or a vice versa, you, actually the correct term is known as a straggler. If it's on the incorrect host, um, they, they just they, they don't recognize it as a host and they can't go through what they need to go through to feed. So even though we all have lice, we all have our own species of lice. And so then sheep and goats uh, tend to share things a lot more. Um, but again, there's some some areas where, you know, kids aren't as much of a problem for goats as they are for sheep. But your, your goats are going to be your closest shareability, if you want to call it that. Everything else starts to get a little bit more dilute, except for your, uh, your generalist, like a stable fly, a mosquito, something like that will quite happily feed on whoever comes by. Okay. Excellent. So with that said, I, you know, I'd like to maybe talk about this a little bit more specifically uh, and go through some of these different species and, and maybe we, you can help us uh, with how each of these uh, interact with their host, uh, maybe some signs that yeah. the sheep will exhibit during an infestation and, and best treatment practices. Uh, so you mentioned kids, they're, they're really detrimental to sheep. Let's start with them. Uh, they are and they're kind of a unique parasite. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're often mistaken for a tick. Uh, so what is the best way to identify kids and how are they problematic? Yeah. Kids, I, I, kids are fascinating. So there's some really cool biology things about kids that just, I mean, hopefully next time somebody sees a kid, they'll appreciate them a little bit more just before they get rid of them. So you're right, kids sure. are often called sheep ticks um, because they've got that flattening. They, they've got that kind of flat like, a, uh, like they've been squashed. And so the big difference between, I mean, there's lots of differences, but the big way whether you can tell whether it's a tick or a sheep kid is that a tick has eight legs and a sheep kid has six. So a tick is actually okay. closely related to a spider, 
whereas a sheep cat is an insect, um, so it has six legs. And so most insects and ticks, the female will lay a little clutch of eggs and there can be hundreds to thousands of eggs. And then she goes off and she leaves those eggs and whatever happens to them happens to them. So she invests a lot of energy in making a lot of little eggs and then only a few survive, whereas kids are completely different. What a kid will do is the egg actually hatches inside the female and she has these special glands and we call them milk glands and the larva develops inside of her little body cavity. It's called the abdomen and it will go through multiple molting stages inside this female and it takes a really long time. And then what she does is when it's ready to go through the next stage, which we call pupation and pupation is just when the larval organism rearranges its whole self to be an an adult. So think of a maggot going to a pupa, going to a flying adult. So when it's about ready to do that, what she does is it it kind of gets birthed through um, and it sticks to the wall and then immediately pupates on the wall. And then after a number of days, an adult will come along. So she won't have thousands and thousands of eggs in her lifetime. She might only have, you know, 10 or 20, but the investment, the heavy investment in raising those babies means that almost all of them will survive to adulthood because she's gone and carried them all. So they really, really are unique in an insect world where they invest so much energy in their offspring. Um, The problem is, is that both adult males and females are are what we call obligate blood feeders, which means that they can survive on nothing else but blood. They need the blood to survive. So they'll feed every day as they get older. That might go to about every two days. But each little kid that you have on your animal is going to take a meal every day. And if you look at them, they've got really little pointy mouth parts that they jab into the skin. And it's that jabbing into the skin to get to the blood that causes damage to the hide. So you get formation of cockles. And you can get blood loss. So, you know, if you've got a high number of kids on a small animal, you can get anemia problems. The biggest problem is damage to the hide. And then obviously these uh, insects are taking in blood and, you know, what goes in must come out. And what comes out, uh, we call it frass, it actually damages the wool because you are, it's just, you know, they're pooping in the wool to not put too fine a point on it. Um, and that damages the wool, so you get a downgrading of your product. So even if you don't have too many kids, you can get them forming this downgrading of the product. Um, different to most insects, most insects we have the highest populations in summer, whereas kids actually the highest populations are late winter, early spring. So they're a little bit different to most insects. And then you have decreasing populations towards the summer. Um, so yeah, they really are, are fascinating organisms. Yeah, that is incredibly interesting. Are they found all throughout the, the all, all over the body of the sheep? Are there specific areas that can Yeah, occur? so they, they tend to be, um, they can distribute, obviously the more you have, the, um, the higher, they've got to spread out somewhere, but d- d- predominantly on the back and the ribs. So often you'll see that it's okay. called rib cockles and it's over there um, that, that you see them. And you, if you just part the hair, if you part the wool, you can see them and they just, they're, they, they're little jobbies with six legs. They look almost prehistoric. Um, and they're, they're not okay. great at running around, but they crawl through the hair. They really are adapted to staying on the host. And if, if you shear them, that, that those kids will die within a few days. Once they're off the host, they, they die. They need that humidity. They need that warmth from the host to survive. 
Yeah, I was, I was curious, uh, you know, what are kind of the best practices for controlling? Yeah. Is, is shearing good enough or or is there, a, a, you know, a topical that we should yeah. apply? Yeah, shearing is great. So if you just shear prior to lambing, you can reduce transfer by 75%. So just think of that. If by just timing your shearing correctly, you can get rid of almost all your sheep kids. And so then um, what's left, and, and they're, they're transmitted only by direct contact. So you need an animal bumping up to another animal to get it transferred. So anytime animals are bumping up to each other, you have transfer. So anything that's left after shearing, let a week or so happen. So some of that hair can grow out again so that you can uh, apply the product to it and it has something to grab onto. And then you can use a pour-on or a spray um, with a pyrethroid or organophosphate or macrocyclic lactone. Uh, we recommend each each year each year treating with a different kind of product, so ro- rotating annually. But we'll chat about that a bit later. Um, so so yeah, that's that's a good thing to do. Any animals that you have coming in, this is one of the big things. If you're getting new animals in, always check those new animals. And this is whether it's kids, it's lice, it's anything. Check what you have coming in. Because these these organisms, lice and kids are two great examples of this. Any bumping, you can take it from an animal that you've brought in and spread it throughout your herd. So really check animals that you have coming in. And if you need to treat them, uh, shear them before they enter the herd, depending on, on what time of year this, this is. Okay. Now you mentioned, uh, you know, sheep kids often mistaken for for ticks uh but ticks can be harmful to, to sheep too and it seems like there's a, a whole plethora of different types and kinds of ticks yeah uh, are there certain ones that we should be worried about or are more worried about uh and is the control the same yeah. for for all different types of ticks yeah so ticks are ticks are the real ticks not the sheep ticks really yeah. easy uh, you know all ticks can be controlled the same way. Unfortunately, this is one where um, there's not much you can do in terms of shearing. Shearing will cut them down, but the, the, they don't stay on the host all the time. That You can treat with organophosphates and uh, pyrethroids. Those are really great for, for treating any kind of tick. Um, most tick species will are, are semi-host specific, but most of them, by the time they start to get older in their life, will feed on anything. So most of them are quite happy to feed in, in sheep on sheep and, again, transmit a number of nasty pathogens. One tick that we really need to be on the lookout for, it's called the red sheep tick. Its scientific name is Haemophysalis punctata, if anybody interested in that. Um, why we care about this, this oh. is actually an invasive tick species. So the Asian longhorn tick, a lot of you have seen in the news, uh, a tick predominantly of cattle. This is like its cousin. Um, so it's probably been around since 2013, but in 2020 we conclusively proved that these are the ticks that they found in Rhode Island. We saw the same thing in New Jersey with uh, Haemophysalis longicornis, the Asian longhorn tick, and we've just seen a sweep across the United States. We're going to see probably something similar to this with the red sheep tick. And um, the, the problem with this is it's a nondescript brown jobby. You know, if you if you finding ticks, you can always send them to an entomologist and say, hey, is this something I need to worry about? Um, the problem with this is that it's a vector of a number of diseases and it's invasive. And anytime you get an invasive tick, we're lucky in the States in that a lot of the tick-borne pathogens we don't have to worry about. There's a lot out there that we don't have. When invasive tick species come in, it's all a matter of time before pathogens follow. And so, you know, right. we saw that with the Asian longhorn tick with cattle. We first saw the tick and then we saw the tilaria, the uh, um, tilariosis come in after it. So strong chances are that we might get some invasive 
um, tick-borne pathogens coming in. Not yet, but um, we, we, we might get it coming. And um, so in the States, our main tick-borne pathogen that we worry about is anaplasmosis. Um, so it's, again, you know, cattle get anaplasmosis, sheep get anaplasmosis, we get anaplasmosis. Different organism. Different organism causing each of their, their cousins, but there is a sheep-specific one. So if your cattle get anaplasmosis, you don't necessarily have to worry about your sheep getting it if you're co-grazing sheep and cattle because it's a different anaplasmosis. But that's that's our big, big tick-borne disease that we need to worry about in the States. But treatment with uh, pesticides can, can get rid of them. Also, you know, if you can, keep your grass short because ticks climb up the grass stem to, to get onto their host. So anywhere where you've got tall grass, it's more likely to be good for ticks. We found... Eastern red cedars are um, just invasive and they're moving throughout the states, expanding their range. Eastern red cedars are just crazy, crazy, crazy microhabitats for um, not only ticks, but mosquitoes too. So, you know, getting rid of eastern red cedars where, where they're not commonly found is, is something that people can do to get rid of those tick pockets. Okay. All right. And I think if I'm following you, uh, you know, ticks maybe don't stay on their host yeah. for their entire lifetime. They'll, they'll come off and, and transfer to a new host. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, we, we, we call them one host, two host, or three host ticks. And basically they've got three life stages and each life stage has to blood feed. So you'll have a larva, which will blood feed, and then it'll turn into a nymph, which will blood feed, which will then turn into an adult and blood feed, and then the adults will mate, lay eggs, and the female will lay eggs and die. And so some of them will climb onto a host during the larval stage and stay on that same host for all three stages. So it's a one-host tick because it only uses one host. But a lot of the ticks that we have here in the States are what we call three-host ticks. So each year they find a different host. So they normally start on a small mammal, wow. like a rabbit or um, a mice, and then feed, use that for the larval stage, and then it will come off and molt over winter. The next year it comes alive again, and it's sort of up the grass and waiting. And then it might climb onto a sheep or something else that's passing. And so we, tr we generally only see ticks on our livestock during the adult stage. That's when most people notice them because they're big. Um, but this is important because, you know, it's, it's hard to manage ticks because if you've got a three-host tick, and you've got, you can't control the rabbits, you can't control the mice, you can't control all these alternative places where they might feed till they get to the stage where they're on your sheep. Right. Okay. And, and on, once they're on the sheep, uh, like same question I asked with yeah. the kids, is, is there a preference uh, area? Uh, yeah, preferred they, area they do on tend to tend to go for different areas. Some of them will just hop on and be wherever they are, but some of them are pretty, pretty, um, a specific where they like to go. Like for example, the, the, the Gulf Coast tick really likes ears. And um, so you'll often find them on ears, especially on cattle, you get this gotch ear forming because they're so aggressive and they feed on the ears. And the really interesting thing is why, you know, I've always wondered why would you do this as a tick? Why would you have a specific, why would you even bother, right? All you need is a blood meal. Yeah. You know, just, just right, yeah. please put your mouth in and get your meal and then go. <laughs> but if you, right. so, so ticks are really interesting. Once their mouth parts are inserted, they can't actually reverse out. So once they're in there, okay. they're in there, they cement they're themselves stuck. in there. And so if you think about the fact that you're cemented in there for the whole period you feed, which might be a week, might be two weeks, might be however long it is. And if you're an adult and you've cemented yourself in there, you've got to hope a mate finds you. So if you all tend to like yeah. the same area, it's easier to find a mate and then a male will come along, you'll do what you need to do and then and then you can get off. And actually, the reason why ticks come off 
is not because they can inject themselves out. If you think about, you know, we've all seen those big females that are just giant. You know, their little legs are yeah, sticking yeah. outside of there, but they can't even walk. Yeah. How are they going to get themselves right. out? So what they actually yeah. do in their saliva, there's these compounds that are just immunosuppressive. I mean, it's just amazing the, the, the stuff that they've got in their saliva. So they basically confuse the body and the body thinks that nothing exists there. So they can feed for and the body's like carrying on even though it's got a tick there. The moment they need to get out, they stop producing these compounds. The body all of a sudden says, hey, there's something here. And just like a splinter gets ejected, the body just ejects that tick right out. Wow. Yeah. This is fascinating. Yeah. That's now, a, now, you also you also cool. said something that that brought a question to my mind. You said that each year, a tick, you know, yeah. these different stages of ticks find a new host. So what is the lifespan? Of yeah. It? You know, a tick can live three, three years, four years, five years. That's a hard tick. So we've got these, these little things, called, and we're digressing totally just because they're so cool. Yeah. You get a soft yeah. tick, and they're slightly different. You normally find these in burrows. And they feed multiple times in, in in each stage. And they can wait years before another meal comes along. I had ticks in my lab that a student had collected two years ago in California, and I forgot about them. They were in a sealed bottle. I opened up the bottle, blew on them, and they woke up. We gave them wow. blood meal, and they ate blood meal. And they, so they can go for years without feeding, just <laughs> waiting. They just go into this dormant state, and they will just hang out i mean if that's just not ingenuity i don't know what is so you've got yeah. to they are resilient little creatures yeah yeah that, that that's really impressive yeah if you think okay of kids, a tick For, can live as long as a hamster think about that your little your kid's hamster okay. lives about as long as a tick Okay, that that's a great analogy. I like it. Yeah. Okay, for time's sake, we're going to keep going yeah. on. But if you think of anything cool, by all means, we can go right back to yeah. it. Yeah. But uh, let, let's move on to lice. Yeah. You know how are how about lice? They're a, they're a big one that many sheep producers are are pretty aware of. Um, but there are actually you know different types of lice, yeah. and they affect sheep differently and in different areas. And so I'd, I was hoping maybe you could give us a little rundown there. Yeah. So lice, huge problem again. Low numbers in summer, high numbers in winter. And especially on animals that are, you know, malnourished or struggling, they tend to have higher lice burdens. And so the, the, the thing is, you know, in cattle, we say, well, cattle can tolerate lice pretty well. We don't worry about them too much until they cause a problem. Sheep are different. Even low numbers of lice will actually cause problems in the, in the sheep. So um, what you get is, again, biting lice. So there's two kinds of lice. There's lice that actually feed on, on blood, and those we call biting lice. And then there's chewing lice. And those just feed on skin secretions and the wool fibers themselves. So obviously, if you've got um, chewing lice, it's, it's, it's eating up your product. It's irritating the skin. You're sucking lice, piercing into the body. It can cause um, allergic reactions. You get rubbing. You get scratching. The animals can get secondary infections from that. So our real, real big ones that we worry about. Um, so there is the sheep biting lice. And this um, feeds on skin secretions on the back and the midsides. Um, less common in drier areas. So like I mentioned, Wyoming, less of a problem. You know, you move down to Florida, more of a problem. Uh, blood sucking lice, we get the African blue lice. Unfortunately, it comes from Southern Africa. I apologize about that. Um, but introduced to the United States years and years ago, not my fault. Um, and so these affect both sheep and goats and they're found on the loin, the backs and the ribs. And so when we get slippage, so you can get sloughing off of whole areas of the, the, the fiber and that's the reaction to that lice 
which just absolutely you can have huge bald areas so lice is really something that you want to control um, so again most abundant in winter so it doesn't matter if you're dipping in the summer for lice because that's not when your problem is so you've got to you've got to think about okay when is my my insect most active so for kids and lice this is winter Again, spread direct contact. So you want to inspect any animals you have coming in. Shearing can, can definitely help with it. Um, and then again, treating with your pesticides after shearing. Important with, with lice is you have to treat twice. So the eggs, which uh, are called nits, that's where we get the, the term nitpicking from, resistant to, they've got a really, really um, a, a hardy outside shell of the egg. So the pesticides actually can't get in. So you have to treat once to get rid of nymphs and adults, and then treat again a second time to get rid of anybody who, who hatched from those eggs. And so the product should tell you on the label what the ideal spacing is between those two for that product. Um, and so again, whole body treatments, uh, you can use, you know, submersion of the animals, spraying, porons, Whatever you do, it doesn't matter. Just make sure that you're applying your product correctly. No one is necessarily better than the other. But just remember, you know, if you're treating for these lice and kids in winter that, you know, for something like a spray that you've got to get your whole animal wet, you want to think about, okay, is the animal's going to be wet, making sure it's not too cold, making sure they dry sure, off, yeah. things like that. Really, really important. Oh. Okay. And now, as you said, two treatments for lice. Yeah. Uh, so how far apart? Uh, should those treatments be? So um, it depends again on temperature. The warmer it is, the faster they're going to develop. So you could, you know, space them a week apart. The colder it is, the longer it is. And it depends on your product. So your, your product label, if you read your product label, it should tell you for lice, treat this many times. And part of that is how, how, how much residual effect the pesticide has. So something with a lo longer residual effect that is active for longer, your treatment time will be better. So I always tell people the best thing you can do is read the label the label will give you what sure. you what you need to know okay now now for sheep specifically compared to some other livestock species you mentioned shearing is a good way to control uh you know kids uh, and lice both but uh, the way i understand it is pretty quickly right after shearing is going to give you the most effective treatment if you if you do a pour on within yeah. you know 24 hours or, or so yeah uh, is that right yeah i mean i i've there's two schools of thought. I mean, right after is definitely convenient. You know, if you if you need to shear your yeah. animals and turn them out, then by all means do it. But if you can hold on to them for a few days to just let that hair grow back a little bit, you do get a, a larger surface area for the product to adhere to. And that just means that, you know, it just works a little bit better if it's got a, a larger surface area. Obviously, you don't want the hair to grow back too much because then if you're applying your product, it's not going to get to the skin surface where it needs to be. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Now for lice, kids and, and ticks, uh, just to reiterate this a little bit, you know, they differ in the way that they're transmitted from animal to animal, uh, kids, direct contact, uh, ticks, they, they come off and find a new host and, yeah. and lice is direct contact as well. And, and so what, you know, is there anything in that information that, you know, could help us for control if you've got animals that yeah. you think are infested, you know, keep them apart, I guess. Or? Yeah. So keeping them apart for sure, especially for your direct contact. So your lice and your kids, your ticks, you know, your ticks can survive a long time off the host. So they're almost harder to control yeah. because an animal can walk through a path and acquire a tick. There doesn't, you know, and, and once it ticks on an animal, it's on an animal. 
So you don't have to yeah. worry as much. If you've got an animal that has a lot higher tick burden than another, you don't have to worry about it moving those ticks necessarily to other animals as much as you do with a sheep, a kid, or, 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 or lice. Um, so it really... Uh, you know, ticks are just one of those things where you can do as much as you can, but because they can spend so much of their life off the host, they're really just a lot harder to control. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, you can just see it. I mean, they they'll run away from you. They'll some of them will actively hunt for a host. So, you know, they're they're just a little bit more mobile. But that once they're uh, on and not they're, to mention they'll stay attached. Okay, and you said that you know, particularly in the case of ticks. Uh, wildlife plays yeah. a, a pretty big role or, or can play a big yeah. role in transmission. Uh, but maybe that's not the case as much with kids and lice. Yeah. Not so much with kids and lice because your, your kids, your lice specifically are, you know, that they're, they're specifically adapted to sheep or go, you know, goats, some of them shared, but they, that's what they want. That's what they'll be on. Um, kids, kids are a funny one. A sheep kid will only go on a sheep, but you get a deer kid which is winged so it can fly around unlike our sheep kid that can't fly and okay. you know it'll land on something and if it's not a deer it'll pick up and fly until it reaches a deer and then it will lose its wings its wings will fall off it's done its job so so deer for example do get kids but it's a different kind of kid that you don't have to worry about with your sheep ticks are the big one you know ticks Wildlife is a great reservoir for ticks, and often if you have things like white-tailed deer, huge reservoir for ticks. Anybody who's more up north, uh, a moose, thing, any any large herbivore is a, a huge tick little transporter. Potential reservoir. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, and, and one thing, you know, we get in in a, in a pretty good habit of. Uh, you know, pouring on a, a topical treatment to control some of these external parasites. But I, I am interested, how, you know, how does a pour on work? Uh, you said it, it needs some surface area. It needs to get down to the skin, but you know, does it, uh, it is it absorbed into the bloodstream and then the animal consumes the blood? Is that right? Or, or how does that pour on top? Yeah. Really so affect the parasite? A systemic drug is, is one that we feed the animals normally orally or injectable, and then it gets taken up in the blood meal. But the vast majority of our products are actually topical. So they're on the outside of the animal. And so um, what happens is, so a spray is obviously a lot easier because you just spray the whole animal and it stays put. A pour on, sure. what you do is you pour it along the top line and it moves throughout the body, the, the oils in the hair. You know, so we've got these skin oils and it will basically move along with those oils and move off. Now, a poron is not going to get to the legs of the animal. And we do have lice that are predominantly on the legs of the animal, not as economically important. But so a poron is not going to help you with that kind of lice. So you've got to look at what you have okay. as to the best option you have. But porons are good because they're easy to apply, you know. But again, no matter whether you are a poron or a spray or a dip or anything, they will work the same way in that they basically, they paralyze the, the, instead of your nerve firing and then stopping, it basically makes the insect's nerve just go nonstop and it causes paralysis and it kills the insect. So no matter what formulation you use, it does the same thing. Um, and so the same rules apply. And so we have some really good best practices for insecticide. I mean, insecticide resistance is a problem. We don't have any new products coming onto the market. Everybody knows resistance is a problem, but people don't always know what should they actually do to combat it? So, I mean, a few things that just are, are essential. One is just following the product instructions, especially when it comes to diluting, especially for things like porons. If it says dilute one to five, dilute one to five, because if you're trying to save a little bit of money and dilute one to six or one to seven, 
you're giving a dose that is under below the lethal dose for that insect. So what you're actually doing is saying, here's a little bit of poison, not enough to kill you, but enough for you to develop resistance to it. So the biggest thing is underdosing animals because you're just it just spreads resistance so much faster. So making sure you are diluting properly, treating at the right time. You know, kids and lice, we talked about them being active in winter. So treat just before that, that active period, or, you know, there's no use treating for lice in, in, in the middle of summer. Um, rotate annually. So rotate between a pyrethroid, a organophosphate, and a macrocyclic lactone each year. And so this is where it gets hard for producers to know what product because you can you can use two different products. You know, they come from different companies. The bottles look different, but they're both pyrethroids. And so you're not actually rotating. You're just using two different brands of the same product. So, you know, and, and Google is one of the best things you could have ever done. You know, if you go and you just type in at the active ingredient and you say, what, what is this? And it'll tell you whether it's a, what group it falls under. So making sure that you're, you're rotating annually, don't mix product. You know, some people will try a pyrethroid and then halfway through this, the year, they'll switch to something else. So really use it for a year because by switching too fast, you can also get the, the development of resistance. Um, and there's a really great um, a website. It's called uh, veterinary entomology, one word, .org. And they actually have a really awesome feature there. And we, we try to keep it as updated as possible. But you can actually go in there and you can select which state you're in, which animal you have, what what kind of uh, insect you're trying to get rid of. And it'll tell you which ones, wh what your options are and which group they belong to. So that really is a great tool for producers to, to really plan out, okay, year one, I'm going to use this. Year two, I'm going to use this. Year three, I'm going to use this. Um, don't treat lambs. Uh, these, these, com these chemicals are toxic. To us, they're toxic to our animals. The reasons why they kill insects is because of their really small body size. So they do the same thing to the insect that they do to us. It's just we're bigger, so it's spread out over a larger volume. Lambs are small. And so obviously it's going to be a lot more toxic for a lamb than it is an adult uh, um, ram or you. Um, and then very importantly, dose your animals accurately. Know the weight of your animal. If it says poor, you know, shoulder to tail, poor shoulder to tail. If you're pouring shoulder to halfway through the body, you're giving half the product, which again, selects for resistance. So, you know, really making sure we make, pick good products and then use them properly to really slow this resistance we can as much as, as, as possible. Okay, great. That, that is awesome advice. Now, now, one thing that I am also curious about for, particularly for your kids, ticks and lice that, you know, kind of reside on the outside of the animal there, uh, are, are hair sheep affected the same as wool sheep? Yeah. Uh, do those, do those species need that wool for survival or, or how does that work? Yeah, they're, 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 they can still get them. It's not as much. If you think about the, especially, um, the way wool grows, it forms this intertwined, mesh which is just great for insects to hide out in whereas your hair sheep it's it's finer they can slip off easier um so not as much as a, of, of a problem as in a wool sheep but they are still they are i mean if it, a sheep kid finds it it's going to be happy you just might not get as high numbers yeah. as you would on, on a wool sheep right. okay sure okay now moving on a little bit, you know, flying insects can also be detrimental to sheep in a variety of ways. Uh, so, what are some of the major fly species that are most problematic for for our sheep flocks? Yeah, and flying insects are hard because they they come into contact with the the host for even shorter period of time. You know, at least your lice and your kids are staying put. 
Um, so flying insects, right. uh, the big ones that we worry about are predominantly mosquitoes and midges. Um, so mosquitoes, both of them are important because of the viruses they transmit. So a number of viruses get transmitted. Midges transmit blue-tongue, mosquitoes, West Nile virus, um, Cache uh, Valley virus. So a lot of really nasty viruses. Um, and then another one is, is wool maggots. So that's actually the larval form of a fly. And so making sure that you're keeping your animals clean and not giving it a place to lay those eggs. Um, we have American screwworms, which again, the maggots are growing in, you know, it's been largely eradicated, but it's still there. And so anywhere where you have a wound, you know, keeping wounds clean, allowing them to heal properly, making sure that when you're castrating, you're doing it properly so that you're not getting the formation of a wound. Um, again, midges love to feed on the nose and the mouth. So the dirtier the nose and the mouth is, the better it is and they'll, you'll get more midges. So keeping your animals clean and healthy is really important. Crazy one is nose bot flies. So they'll actually hover around the nose and they're, they're, they'll get right in there. Um, so those are our, our, our major flying ones that we, we really, really think about. Of course, taverners, our, our horse flies are around everywhere. They, they, they're also a, a nuisance, um, but midges and mosquitoes are our, our two big ones. And then the nose spot flies. Okay. Now between those, you know, different species, uh, are there signs that the sheep will exhibit in their behavior maybe uh, that will tell us what type of, of fly that we're dealing with? Yeah. So, with? you know, some of them, like a stable fly will go to the legs and often you can see if, if it's stomping its legs, it's a stable fly. Um, mosquitoes and midges are hard. Midges are really hard because they're tiny. So you yeah. don't see them a right. lot of yeah. the time, but often if you see ulceration around the mouth, you, it's a good sign that you've had a lot of midges feeding there. Mosquitoes, I mean, a mosquito feed for a couple of minutes and then it's gone. Often you don't know about your mosquitoes until you get transmission of something like like a virus. Um, the nose spot fly too, you won't see it um, because it's very, it just lays that larva. Interestingly, it doesn't lay an egg. It actually lays a pre-hatched larva right near the nasal opening and then the larva will go in and so they'll actually grow in the nasal cavities and most sheep have them and can be with them okay. quite fine. The level of like 10 to 20 per sheep is okay. The problem is when you get higher levels. So if you get sort of 100 to 300 of these bot larva growing in the nasal cavities, the, yeah. the sheep, what you, you'll often see them sneezing. You'll see mucus around the nose. You'll see them rubbing their faces. Sometimes they'll try and bury their faces in another sheep. So that's often an indication that that animal has a very high level of nasal pots just growing in there. And then if you think about it, you know, you've got this, this overwhelming amount in this individual, which causes mucus around the mouth, which causes sores to form. And then all of a sudden the midges are like, Ooh, this is a great place to be. So you can often get one, yeah. one causing an effect that then brings another into play. And so nasal sure. bots, are, now, you can treat them with an avamectin-based product and that, that should get rid of them. But sneezing, sneezing is a big one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was just going to ask you that. You know, I, I could see the challenge with trying to control, uh, you know, a stable fly or midges or gnats, yeah. but with, with nasal bots, so we can we can give them with a with an oral drench of, of yep. ivermectin? Or, yep, or yep, 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 okay. yep. That'll work just fine. Awesome. Okay. Now for flies that, you know, may lay their eggs in, in the dung or feces. You know, how effective are feed through IGRs? Uh, you know, I hear about them all the time yeah. in, in cattle industry. Are they effective for sheep too? They can be. Um, I, 
you know, they seem like a great idea, but the problem with an, an IGR works great if you have control over how you are feeding it and how it's getting deployed. So, you know, you, you've got to make sure that all the animals eat the same amount of it, you know, because otherwise, if you've got one animal who just doesn't decide to eat it, that's a place for flies to grow. And so yeah. you've got to make sure that all your animals are eating it. And then also you have to look at where your animals are going to be. So they, what happens is they eat it, it passes through the digestive system, and then it's passed out in the manure. Now, if your manure is getting mixed with anything else, so let's say that you've got animals that are standing around a hay bale and spending a lot of time in a hay bale and, you know, urinating in that hay bale, all of a sudden the manure is getting trampled into the hay bale. And then, sure, you might have had enough active ingredient in the individual feces, but by the time it's spread out, all of a sudden you don't have enough of it. And there's a slight misconception about insect growth regulators that you can't develop resistance to them. So they're a good one to use because you can't develop. That is absolutely false. You can develop okay. resistance to them as much as you can any other product. We have recorded cases of it happening. It's been shown in the literature that it happens. It's happening. It was happening slower than other uh, conventional organic pesticides, but it is happening and it is speeding up. So I would say that, you know, they can be effective, especially in cattle. You know, sheep have a, a much drier manure, so you don't have, they're not as yeah. conducive for, for filth breeding flies. But the moment you mix that in with some water and it dissolves or, 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 or around a hay bale, it definitely can be a suitable place for, for flies to develop. But an, an IGR in that case is not going to help you because it's getting diluted out. And, the, and, and they're pricing. Yeah. And if they're not, yeah. Yeah. And so, like you said, I, I guess if, if those insects aren't getting a, a full lethal dose, it may actually be compounding yeah. the problem yeah. of resistance. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I want to go back to something that you, you mentioned uh, in, in one of your earlier answers a second ago, uh, because here where I'm located in Texas, we've been seeing some Cache Valley virus uh, cases pop. And I know that that's not just a, a Texas issue. Yeah. It's, it's across the U.S. Uh, and that's a that's from mosquitoes. That's uh, from, from mosquitoes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so is, is that really the way that mosquitoes can, can impact sheep is, is as a vector of disease? Yes. Are there other diseases that they can yeah. transmit besides that cash valley? And, um, yeah, you I know, mean, how does that work? There's a bunch of them that they can, can transmit. Thankfully, we don't have a lot of the really, really nasty ones, but that's not to say that we won't get them. You know, we've right, seen yeah. introduction of, of, of pathogens in it, just with the global movement of animals across borders the global movement of people, we're seeing a lot more. So, you know, another one to watch out for is West Nile virus. Um, you know, it, Nile, yeah. it's another one. And also that can go from animals to, to, to humans. Uh, our big problem is midges and blue tongue virus. You know, that one is, uh -huh. is, is a really, really nasty one. So, for example, our midges and mosquitoes, they don't take too much blood. You don't get, I mean, you can get a lot of midges, but even so, it's not an economics issue. It really is coming right. to the pathogens that they transmit. And and they're, they're, they're hard to... To control because they they're only on your animal for a very short period of time while they're feeding. So something like an insecticide that's on your animal is not necessarily going to do much uh, to to combat them. What you can really do is make sure that you're getting rid of any larval breeding sites. So mosquitoes have to breed the the larvae are in water, and we we've seen them. You know, yeah. we're, we've all been at a pond and seen yeah. the little 
wigglers going around. So really eliminating any source of standing water. And it's it's crazy how little water they need. Just a little bit of water pooling in in, in an old discarded tire, a tree hole. Yeah. You know, even just your if you've got plants around the house that have a draining tray, they can they can survive in that small amount of water. So really eliminating any standing water, even just, uh, you know, where animals are at the watering station and, and causing depressions in the earth and then maybe you get a bit of rain, standing pools of water, midges, mosquitoes just absolutely love that. So really getting rid of any standing water in your stock tanks, making sure that they're clean because the 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 mosquito need to filter things out of the water column. So clean water means that there's not so much for them to eat, which means the females aren't going to lay their eggs there. So clean tanks means that it's not attractive as a female to, to lay her eggs there. You know, you can do things like fish in a stock tank are great because they just eat all the, the lava mosquitoes. Um, yep. And then also just there's, there's these BTI, so these little mosquito bits, you can put them in water if you've got a standing water and uh, it, it's safe for the animals, we can consume it, no problem, but it, it kills the lava mosquitoes. Um, midges are, you know, little gnats are a little bit harder because – they're, they're, they're much smaller to see the lava, so you don't know that they're there. They're almost microscopic. They're so small. And so, but they, they really, they, they like places you need moisture and you need organic material, so manure. So just keeping places dry in itself can really reduce your population. Um, there are traps, you know, you can put up traps. They, you know, depending on the, the, the species, they can be more or less effective. But really getting rid of those larval habitats is one of the best things you can do. Okay. Yeah. And I apologize. This question is going to kind of put you on the spot here uh, because I, I just thought of it right now, but you know, if you were going to move your animals, let's say away from a, a pond or, or, you know, a permanent source of water, you know, how far can mosquitoes and gnats and, and whatnot, how far do they travel from that water source or that, um, you know, kind of larval development area, uh, before you're somewhat in a safe zone, I should say. Yeah, they can travel surprisingly far i mean um <laughs> disappointingly far disappointingly <laughs> far i mean we've done people have done catch and release studies on them and, and marked individual ones and seen how far they, they can go a good couple of miles um so oh, yeah. you know it's unless you're in a desert you know, yeah, chances are, and you know that, and they'll, they'll they'll sort of they won't fly directly. They'll fly a little bit, hide out in a tree for a little while, fly again. Yeah. So they'll 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 find their their way about. But yeah, they they'll get you. That's a tough one. To, yeah. Tough one to escape from. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I just want to you know before we wrap things up too soon, uh, uh, I want to go back to this idea of, of drug resistance and in, in parasites. Um, you, you said there's not really any new formulas that look like they're being developed. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it's mostly we're, we're dealing with what we got. Yeah. Uh, so sh should we selectively treat animals for external parasites? Let's, you know, let's say we go out in our flock and we see uh, a few that look like they may have lice or, or something. And would we just treat those animals or should we always treat everybody to be safe? Yeah, this is a tough question because it's almost a, in a way, a personal choice. I, I always say tolerate them as much as you can because anytime you're treating, you're putting a selective pressure on. And so really knowing at what point is this going to 
be something that you can't tolerate anymore. And so something like a, a nose bot, where for the most part, animals can have them just fine. You don't need to treat your whole herd for that. You can just treat the one that obviously has a burden. Right. For things like yeah, okay. lice and kids, it's a little bit harder because they are transmitted by direct contact. So you really, you know, you can you can go from, okay, well, my one animal has a lot to all of a sudden that's spread to a lot of different animals. So in that case, to you know, for a lice or a or a kid, it might be better to treat your whole herd, especially if you're doing it at one time and it's a one-off thing. You know, what you want to do is limit treating multiple times, different animals, different amounts, different products. So if you if it's something like kids or lice, do it once, do the whole herd, and then you're done. Something like bots, you know, you may want to wait off and see how it goes and then pick out animals who seem to be having, having more problems. Um, of course, if one animal, despite your treatment, does still have higher levels, higher than everybody else, and you've you can always go back and retreat that animal because for whatever reason, maybe it had more to start with. Maybe it's just generally struggling a bit more. Then, so if, if, then you don't have to treat your whole herd again. You could just retreat that animal separately. Okay. All right. That makes sense. All right. Now, regarding external parasites, uh, it, you know, is there any research uh, that maybe you are conducting or aware of that uh, you could share with us? Uh, and yeah. that could really, like I said, external parasites is pretty broad. So anything it's, that uh, you'd just like to update us on? Yeah, it's pretty broad. Um, I think two, two, two things that I'm just, one's I'm interested about and one's I'm scared about. The, the one that I'm scared about is the <laughs> red sheep tick because you know, anytime there's an invasive. So that's, that's interesting. I don't think anybody needs to panic right now, but just, just to be aware of just, you know, just even getting a feel for who you have on your, on your area, knowing who you have means that you're going to spot somebody new much, much sooner. Um, some interesting thing that we're doing, I mean, I work predominantly in, in the, 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 the beef sector. So we're, what we're doing is we're doing cool stuff with, we're starting to really realize the importance of dung beetles in pasture management and how they, they're really just so important for the whole ecosystem. And this is whether you're running sheep or you're grazing cattle, no matter what you have, these dung beetles are so, so essential. And so we're starting to look at things like, okay, well, um, what effect does the grazer have on the community of dung beetles? And it seems to be that depending on who you have as your grazers, you'll, submit, you'll have different dung beetles. And then importantly, looking at the, the treatments that we give our animals, how do these affect the dung beetles? Because the dung beetles are great at controlling external parasites, because especially your manure-based ones, because they take that breeding yeah. habitat away. So that's something that I'm, I'm, I'm excited about. Okay, that's really neat. So where can, where can our podcast listeners go to, to learn more about parasite control? You mentioned a, a website earlier in the recording. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, everyone... You know, if there's somewhere that they can go look some stuff up, yep. uh, if they have some more questions. Yeah. So I would say always your local, if you're lucky enough to have a land grant university in your state, your local extension agents are going to be great because they're going to have information tailored to your area. You know, we talked about how the distribution of these things varies a little bit. So that's always a great place to start. And um, the veterinaryentomology.org website is great. So it's just, you know, if you just type into Google veterinaryentomology.org, it'll take you there. You can even type in vet pest X, one word, it'll take you there too. Um, and so it's, it's, it's run by a bunch of veterinary entomologists and we do our best that we can to keep up to date. But the really great thing about that is that you can search by state, 
You can search by your animal. You can search by your organism. So let's say you're, you've got sheep and, and cattle and you want to look at products for both. That, that website is going to be going to be great. And people can really feel free to reach out, me, out to me at any time. My email is colds at ksu.edu. Um, so awesome. I welcome any – I'm here to help. So whatever people need, oh. I can hopefully help them out. Well, we appreciate that. I've got just one more question for you uh, before we wrap up. Sure. Uh, can you leave us just with one take-home message? You've you supplied a tremendous amount of information, but if you'd like our listeners to just take home you know, one solid thing from our discussion today, what would that be? One solid thing. I've, you know, I've just gone and told you how to kill all these creatures and get rid of them and stuff like that. But if there's one thing I could say is just if, if people just – I hope they've realized how how unique they are and how how adapted to life they are. And just knowing if if if, if spend a little time googling when you when you're bored one day, just Google the life cycle of you know one of these organisms and read up on the life cycle because the best thing you can do is know who you have, educate yourself about where they breed what their life cycle is, what they like to do. And then all of a sudden, everything just opens up to you in terms of control. And then you're not relying on somebody else telling you what to do or what to use. Then you can start saying, hey, I think I've got a problem with this and I've got a problem with that. Both of those are found here. Maybe I should clean up. And then you can really, really start, you know, taking control of the situation and, and really just being able to make your own best choices about what to do. Awesome. Well, I, I want to thank you again uh, for an excellent discussion. Great information, Dr. Olds. I, I really enjoyed having you uh, with us uh, on the podcast today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Sure. We wish you the absolute best uh, with your research moving forward and look forward to, to hearing more about uh, as, as it unfolds. Uh, listeners, remember to subscribe to our ASI podcast to be notified of new episodes, whether that is a new research update or the great information that Chase Adams brings us with the Sheepcast. Uh, but until next time, remember, eat lamb, wear wool, and as always, productive sheep are healthy and mostly parasite-free. <laughs> Have a good day. <laughs>